You're listening to a message brought to you by Christian Life Church Hereford. If you would like to find out more about us, go to www.clch.cc. We're in a series called Prepare for Revival based on the verse uh, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. Uh, this is the same verse was the theme of our 21 days of prayer that we've just finished. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I think on the next slide, that's up there. (coughs) That's a bit too small on that side. So we've got five messages from this one verse and it's about preparing for revival. So we had a brilliant idea as leaders that we, each of the elders would preach one of these in every location, uh, and JP will uh, preach the other one. What we didn't realize immediately, and it became obvious, that then we're preaching through this verse in not in the right order, necessarily. So, um, uh, Andrew chose the bit after the then. This is the revival bit. I will forgive this. Uh, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal a land. That's a great one. And the other guys chose theirs, and then I was left with uh, the one that nobody wanted. So I get to tell you to turn from your wicked ways yes I don't know why why. I'm so looking forward to this oh smile yes (laughs) yeah those that were here for that sermon will know why that was randomly shouted out Uh, so uh, I could uh, focus on the uh, the command of God to turn from our wicked ways and I could focus on our our response to turn from wicked ways. But I want to focus today more on how we can we turn from our wicked ways. And I'm, uh, I want to apply, it, that was in the Old Testament that God spoke that uh, to those people then. I want to apply it to us now uh, in the New Testament times. Um, Tony explained how in this verse it's like you've got an if and then you've got a, a then. So it's like a computer program. Uh, sometimes they say, if these conditions are met, then God will do something. Uh, I have a question about this verse. If you go to the verse again. uh, So part of what we've got to do is to pray. How much prayer is enough? There's never enough. So if there's never enough, then there's never going to be revival. How humble do we need to be? Do we not often feel they haven't quite done enough for God as Christians? Anybody ever feel that? We haven't quite done enough. Have you ever uh, heard people say, or maybe you've said it yourself, I'm not in a very good place with God? Anybody heard people say, anybody said that? Yeah? Not in a very good place with God. Um, so if you were to judge yourself one to ten, where ten is in an absolute top place with God and one is just the lowest you can be, I wonder where you would judge yourself. One to ten, where you are with God. Maybe we could just ask a few, pick a few people and ask where, where they are with God. Everybody's looking at their shoes now. <laughs> we won't do that. But I will, I will tell you where I am, what place I am with God, one to ten. I'm 10. 10. 
I'm not boasting, I'm 10. And I'm going to explain that later why I'm, I can say I'm 10. Uh, I'm going to give you a picture of how we can turn from our wicked ways. Have you ever broken down in your car and you've had to sit in it while somebody pushes you? Anybody done that? And they'll say, right, uh, so you, you know, maybe you've broken down, you need to turn off the road. And they say, right, just turn, turn now. And as you try and turn, it's really hard to turn. It's really hard. Um, now, do you know why that is? Because when the motor is on, the power steering comes on. And when the motor's off, there's no power steering. The power steering doesn't decide the direction of the car. The driver decides the direction of the car. But the power steering gives the power to the direction. If, you're, if you've ever driven a very, very old car with power steering, and nobody of you's got one, they've been in cars for loads of years. Hillman Minks. That's going back a bit. <laughs> um, a car without power steering is almost impossible to steer. It's really hard. So our cars have power steering. God gives us power steering to turn from our wicked ways. So I want to uh, tell you today how to turn it on, how to avoid turning it back to manual steering, because we tend as Christians to turn the power steering off and go to manual steering. Uh, it's like we have a switch, like the switch in the car where you can go power steering, manual steering. We have that, and we turn it off sometimes. I'll tell you how to avoid that. I need to explain this in terms of the New Testament idea of grace. Well, sorry, grace is throughout the whole Bible. God is full of grace, but it's more better explained, more explicitly explained in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you a story about the life of Jesus, a story in the life of Jesus. And it seems that in this story, like in many times, he's saying or doing things that are outrageous or unlawful, as the, they would say, or impossible. Outrageous, unlawful, impossible. An example of an impossible thing, it's not the story I'm going to read, is the story where Jesus tells a paralyzed man to get up and walk. That's impossible for a paralyzed man to do. I know that all things are possible for God. So I'm going to read this story. Not, it's not that story, it's a different one. Uh, and if you think that Jesus is doing or saying something that's outrageous or unlawful or impossible, feel free to, to shout out, outrageous, unlawful, impossible. Okay, feel free to shout out. Um, so if you want to open your Bibles at John 8, verse 3. So, we got, uh, it's going to come, come up on the screen. But if you want to read... Uh, read from your Bibles as well. I'm reading from the New International Version. Chapter, uh, John 8, starting in verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Is the, hold on, it's just explain the rules. If Jesus... <laughs> says something or does something outrageous, unlawful, impossible. Feel free to, I mean, if you, if you think you've done something already, that's fine. It was outrageous, but it wasn't Jesus yet, okay? I know you're incensed and got into the thing, but. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. 
Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with a woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and answered her, and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and sin no more. Now it appears in this story, Jesus is talking and acting as though the death and resurrection had happened and looking to that future. Have you ever considered that last statement that he, he spoke to the woman, go and sin no more, that that is as equally impossible as get up and walk to a paralyzed man. When Jesus said, get up and walk to the paralyzed man, telling him to do something impossible, there was not only a command in the word, there was power in the word. When he spoke to that woman to just completely stop sinning, there was power in the words, not just a command. And God gives power for us to, to stop sinning, to turn from our wicked ways. And I want to explain how he gives the power. When the, when the t- teachers and, uh, of the law started to drift away and, and all left, that's like a symbol of after the resurrection of Jesus, he, uh, uh, he, he put an end to the law. He put an end to the law. He removed the law for us. It says in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law. And when I preached this in Ross, somebody came to me after and said, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law. Not one stroke of a pen of the law will be abolished. But he said, I've come, come to fulfill the law. So because he fulfilled the law, for us, the law is ended. I'm not going to go into all the details of the New Testament uh, <coughs> um, doctrine on that but he ended the law for us. And they're symbolized by taking away all those that were the uh, keepers of the law, the ones that thought that they had, uh, the the protectors of the law, the the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. The other thing that you notice, that by them all leaving, there was an admission of guilt. They were admitting that they also were guilty. It was like they were saying, If I throw this stone, then I know by the law, I'm next to be stoned. They're all guilty. He removed from that woman everyone that accused her. You ever feel that people look at you and and they judge you? They feel that, that they're looking down on you. They feel you're wrong. Anybody ever feel that? 
Do you know that I think the biggest judgment we feel comes from ourselves? And the next bit is how Jesus takes that away. So when they've all left, there's just this sinful woman and a sin-free Jesus. It's all that's left. There is left one who could throw the, th the stone because he was about sin. And just imagine yourself with Jesus face to face. He sees all the sins that were obvious that everybody knows about. He sees all the sin that nobody knows about. He sees all your heart. And he's the perfect God. And he says to this woman, he says to you, I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. Now that is outrageous. That was the outrageous bit. Because the law, that was unlawful as well. Because the law said, this woman must be stoned. And even when Jesus sent away all those that had no sin, he remained by the law, he should have thrown the stone by the law. But he was looking forward to the time when the law was taken away for us and for that woman. Now, those that have walked away, they probably thought, well, you know, we've, yeah, maybe not without sin, but we've kept 99% of the law. This woman has broken 99% of the laws. Is it fair that somebody who really tries hard, is it fair on them that somebody who doesn't really care, breaks most of the laws, and then believes in Jesus is forgiven? Is that fair? Is it fair? Somebody who doesn't really try is forgiven equally as somebody who... Is it fair? Doesn't seem fair, does it? Tell you what's fair. What's fair for the person who is nearly perfect and the person that's broke nearly every law? Hell is fair. Because every sin demands judgment from God. And the, and the past mark is 10 out of 10. But I'll tell you why it's fair. You're right, it's fair. Because it's fair to Jesus. The penalty for sin, the Bible says, is death. But that death has been paid by Jesus. So he's a right to say, I don't condemn you. He's right to say, you're forgiven. Yeah, that's fair. But do you still find that your mind condemns you? That you feel that you haven't done enough? That you feel you're unclean? Anybody struggle with that? Yeah, I do. But Jesus said, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. So he's taken away the law. He's taken away condemnation. And in that, all, what also happened in the cross, we were free from the power of sin. In short, it's grace. God's free gift to those that don't deserve it. Now, I want to explain a bit about the law, how the law works. To avoid you, help you avoid turning back on the manual steering. Because the power of God, by taking away the law and the condemnation, gives us power steering. 
So the law is a way of us helping us turn from our wicked ways. The law is that. The law in the Old Testament was that. By the way, it never worked, but that's what it was intended for, to turn us away from sin. Let me explain. A friend of mine, he, he works with companies to help them implement change in that company. And he says what most companies do is they, they do change by behavior modification. So they give employees incentives to act the way the company wants them to act uh, by these incentives. <clears throat> the problem is when you take the incentives away, everybody just goes back to the way they did things before. Because people are not motivated from within. I read, I don't know why I was reading it, there was some, uh, some article on, on a website about motivation uh, for things like dieting or exercise. Uh, and it was a very complicated article about the uh, motivation. But in the end, it just summed it up in this word. In the end, people do what they want. In the end, if you don't want to do it, you won't do it. People are not very well motivated by uh, external incentives. It's got to be from within. And one of the things the law does is, is motivate externally. The Old Testament is like, that, is like that. So God gave them very clear laws of how to behave, what to do and what not to do, and gave incentives. So the laws were written down, the Ten Commandments, and lots of other laws of how to behave. And there was incentives in Deuteronomy 28, uh, there's a whole list of incentives. If you obey these laws, these are the blessings you'll get. And followed by, if you don't obey these laws, these are the curses you'll get. We would call that these days the carrot and the stick. And in the Old Testament, the incentives never changed. But then what happened was people started to observe and think, all those wicked people aren't getting punished. And I've been pretty good. And I don't seem to be prospering like I feel I should. And so when they think that God's not looking, um, they start to abandon the law and be wicked because the motivation was never from within. It was by laws. And the other thing the law did was this. It measured you. So if you want to know how much to give, it said 10%. 10%. So you knew if you gave 9%, you hadn't given enough. If you give 10%, then you fulfilled the law. And so the mind is... A mind that's kind of based on the law asks the questions like Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven, up to seven, and Jesus says no. Not seven, but 70 times seven. Understand the thinking in Peter's head. It's not how forgiving can I be. What he's, what he's looking for is, is that eighth time. When my brother has been really annoying to be all day, is it okay on the eighth time to smack him? Because that's really what I want to do. But I know I have to forgive him seven times. There's no heart motivation. It's just this law. What's the number? So the law measures us and finds that we fail. Now the New Testament explains what the law was for. It was never God's first best plan. He never thought it was going to work. It, the law was there to show us that we're fail, that we're sinners. Not because God wants to point us and say, look, I knew you were bad all along. It's because God wants to point to us and say, you need a savior. And point us to Jesus. And he sent the savior as well. Because what we need is not 
behavior modification. We need heart transformation. So our hearts are changed that we do what we want because God has changed our hearts. So he sent Jesus. Jesus did obey all the law, but he paid the penalty for not obeying the law, all our penalty. And those that put their faith in Jesus um, become right with God, not because they've obeyed the law, but because they put their faith in Jesus. And the old person dies and we are raised again with a new heart, new creation. That's the idea. But actually, it's even better than just being forgiven. There's something even better, and that is the free gift of righteousness. Let me explain why we need that. If my, if my sheet, uh, a list of all my sins is written down, and one day I'm forgiven, it's all wiped clean, guess what's happening tomorrow? I've messed it up again. And so if it's based on what I do, you can wipe it clean as many times as you like, but then I mess up. What it is, is what it's called in, uh, what it says in Romans 5 verse 17, the free gift of righteousness, that God declares as right as a free gift by our faith in Jesus. So it says in Romans, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. So in the, in the law in the Old Testament, if you obeyed all the laws, God declared you righteous and nobody managed it except Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus, God gives us righteousness as a free gift. That means that we can access God, we're right with God, we're not accused before God, we are free to be in his presence. Amen. And that's how, that's our starting point for turning from wicked ways. Our starting point. And that's why I can say that I'm 10 out of 10 where I am with God. That's no, that's no declaration of how good I've been this week. It's where I am with God because it doesn't depend on how, how well I've done. It depends on God's free gift. So you might be thinking, well, I know all that. And actually, I'm not Jewish. I've never been under that law of the Old Testament. But the fact is, as Christians, we get into the trap of putting ourselves under laws that we create, Christian law. Let me read a bit from uh, Terry Virgo's book, God's Lavish Grace. So he says, in the same chapter, Romans 5 verse 7, Paul speaks of the great prospect of our reigning in life. Similar promises are that Christ will always lead us in triumph, uh, 2 Corinthians, and we will overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. These exciting phrases describe the normal Christian life. However, they often leave us feeling condemned rather than encouraged, knowing that we fall terribly short of what is promised. Often we are brought face to face with the fact that we are hardly reigning in life, too often we feel we are losers rather than winners, overruled rather than reigning, at the mercy of depression and dejection, and the sense of unworthiness before God. In fact, let's face it, condemned. If only I could reign in life is what we feel. Sometimes we are brought to a spiritual crisis in our lives, maybe the special event, when we are exposed to a very searching sermon. Once again we repent, asking God for mercy. 
And if our response is wholehearted, we may even follow through with fresh determination. Sometimes we face this at the beginning of a new year, when, after a year of being in the spiritual doldrums, we embrace the challenge of a fresh January the 1st. Maybe someone has given us a new diary for Christmas. Christmas. Every page is virgin white and unspoiled. We haven't yet wrecked this new year or any day of it. If only I could do better. If only I could reign in life. If only I could be a conqueror. Why can't I be a winner and not a loser? Sadly, at this very moment, many a Christian takes a step which is rooted in genuine aspiration to do better, but actually is a sad step through a wrong door, a wrong, wrong path. Forgetting to read what the text actually says about reigning in life, we tend to set ourselves targets to live by as though that was the secret. We might choose to set our alarm clock one hour earlier in the morning and determine that we'll pray more fervently and in a more disciplined way. We, will, we might then think that this year I'll read my Bible right through from cover to cover. I will start a new reading plan. Furthermore, I shall witness to one person each day. I make it my resolve I must do better. If I can only obey these rules, then I set myself, I can learn to reign in life. If only I could live by these laws, life would be so different. Does that sound familiar? You may even enjoy a few good days, but before January has reached double figures, the very laws that you have set yourself are turning on you to condemn you, that you are already a few days behind in your Bible reading, and you have slept through your prayer time, or even knelt but found no motivation, no sense of fellowship with God, and only a dreadful feeling of anguish, that you don't really know how to pray. Your spiritual endeavours seem to make you feel even more disqualified, since they bring you no joy. Where on earth have you gone wrong? Why is it so difficult to live the Christian life? One of your problems is that you did not closely look closely at the text that promises that you will reign in life. It does not actually speak about your spiritual work rate or your personal endeavor. It does not speak about imposing laws upon yourself to help pick yourself up by your own shoelaces. Rather the opposite. It tells you that through receiving the abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness, you reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. You reign in life by receiving abundant life, grace, not by putting yourself under laws. It is because of your standing that you reign in life. It is because you have obtained grace, not because you achieved or accomplished merit. It is by your position, not by your performance. The imposition of law upon your life will never cause you to reign in life. It will never cause you to enjoy fellowship with him and the graceful life that is so necessary for you to bear fruit for God. Does that sound familiar? I've done that. I'm going to read the Bible through, through this year, right through. That means I've read Genesis a lot <laughs> and Revelation very little. Um... I'm not saying that setting yourself targets is wrong or bad or reading the Bible or praying is bad. I'm not saying anything that you understand. The problem is, is when you measure your position in Christ by what you've achieved. That either leads to condemnation or to pride. Usually condemnation. When we measure our position 
by how well we feel we've done. It's like we're taking that switch and turning off the power of steering it onto manual and saying, God, I've got this. I can handle this now. Thank you, God, for your grace, but I've got this. Guess what happens? Very soon, you crash. There is no measure anymore of how much is enough because the law's been taken away. Because the measure always condemned us, didn't it? Always, it was never enough. Do you know what the, what I've realized is that um, when I was young, I wasn't a Christian, but I was quite good, quite a good boy, well behaved. But I was motivated by fear, the fear of the consequences, not by a desire to do what was right. Uh, and fear can work as a motivation, but it's not good. And the other thing that can be motivated is condemnation, that I ought to really feel bad about what I've done. Neither law or fear nor condemnation really helps you turn from your wicked ways. We think it should because we really feel really bad. We don't want to feel that way again, but it doesn't. What really helps is when we know we start with a clean sheet, that God has given us righteousness as a gift. The other thing that means that Jesus fully obeying the law, that he fulfilled the if of that verse. If my people were called by myself, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from the wicked ways. It's fulfilled in Christ. Because if we do it by the law, we never quite prayed enough. He fulfilled it. And therefore the promise is guaranteed. Now that might sound outrageous that we can just live any way we like. That's not the point. You've the point is, we do have to turn from our wicked ways. What is our part? We have to turn from our wicked ways. But we start from a point of being given righteousness. And we're in Christ, not doing it on our own. It's not about trying harder to attain the impossible of turning from our wicked ways, but trusting in Christ and in his power. And so when we... When we generally turn from our wicked ways, knowing that actually Christ has paid the price, then we have the power of God by the Spirit. He transforms us day by day. He transforms our desires that we're not forcing ourselves, but we generally want to turn from our wicked ways. But what I want to say is that do release yourself from laws that you impose on yourselves. Not that it's not right to have discipline, but when, those law, when you measure yourself by the laws as how right we have God, then you'll fall. Am I making sense? It's quite, in the New Testament, it's quite a complex argument. But I want to release you from law, by which I mean the sense that you're never good enough. You've never done enough for God. A realization that Christ has done it and he's made you who you are to live from that transformed um, per, uh, person that you are because if we measure ourselves we'll always fail and I want to say that there is no condemnation I want to release you from, I believe God wants to release people from condemnation today because yes we know we're forgiven but we feel condemned but the God of heaven 
just imagine again, sat before you, knows all about you, says, I don't condemn you. And he has that right because he paid the price on the cross. Last Saturday, on my um, session in the 24 hours of prayer, I, I, I went for a walk to pray, and I walked through this field on the farm by the river, and it was, it was full of sheep. And as I walked, and they were on the path, and as I walked, they just moved out of the way, except one didn't move because it was right by the path, and it had somehow got it, it in itself incredibly tangled in some brambles. And there was probably three or four brambles right tight round his neck. Goodness no, only a sheep can manage to do that. And it, it couldn't move. It was completely helpless. And so I thought, oh, better. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll free it. But I couldn't. It was, the brambles are so stuck to the wall and difficult to break. I thought, if I had some scissors or secateurs, I could set this free. So I walked to the farm. And... Uh, uh, there, was a, there was a cafe there, but I said, oh, there's a sheep trap. And uh, they said, oh, we know the farmer's on its way. And so I thought, great. And as I, as I was walking back, I felt God say to me, you know, sometimes as sheep, we get ourselves incredibly tangled with all sorts of things, with sin, with condemnation. But I felt... God's, you know, a shepherd in the Old Testament generally wasn't the owner of the sheep. The farmer was the owner. And I felt God say, if you feel really bound up, like you're trapped, you've struggled to get free and you still feel bound, the farmer is on his way. God is the farmer. He's the owner of the sheep. He's on his way. He's going to set you free. But I want to say today you can be set free from condemnation. I want to pray. I really do feel that God wants to set some people free from, not from, from a sense of condemnation, a sense of never uh, being enough. I wonder if it could have, uh, Mike, would you have to play for a while? It's just uh, ask God to come and speak to you and, and free you. Not here just by coincidence but go back to Liverpool understanding that you can transform all the streets of that city because you're young you're strong I want to ask Tim to sing the song and we're finishing and I know I went through a long time I'm probably here <laughs> that I spent too much time Ask God, God, where do you want me to commit? Where I've been too proud to offer just the days that I'm not too busy.
I'm being too proud to check my agenda if I can or not.